Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 61, The Death of a City. So we last stopped was the beginning of the reign of, of Pope Jean IV in 775-776 AD. He was the formal priest of the shrine of San Mina and an excellent administrator. The first thing that he did was to try and establish the link between the Coptic Church and the Church of Antioch. A letter was sent to a certain George, the patriarch according to the information that was available in Egypt. Unfortunately, as we discussed before, Antioch was constantly in flux, with a lot of interference from its Muslim overlords. So at the moment, George was in prison, and another contested patriarch was in charge. So not much happened in that front for a while. Eventually, after 10 years or so, George was released, and his replacement died. He then quickly replied back to Jean's letter, and the churches were symbolically connected again. Also, as you would expect, communication stayed extremely difficult. In his actual day-to-day administration, John's policy was to stick to Alexandria and keep as far away as possible from Fustat and its politics. He put a lot of effort in building a new beautiful cathedral in Alexandria to serve as the patriarch residence. Within five years, the Cathedral of St. Michael, his project, opened and it became the largest church in Alexandria, overtaking the ancient church of St. Mark outside the city. Further, smaller churches in the city were renovated and expanded. Infrastructure projects were built to support the poor in the city, and a famine was handled exceptionally well. The times were good to him, and the governors in Fustat respected him at good times, and left him alone in bad times. Best of all, very quickly, he picked an heir to follow him, a certain talented deacon named Mark. John's reign would end up lasting 24 years or so, a long time for an heir apparent to be waiting. So not surprisingly, his relationship with Mark would eventually hit a snag. You see, when the Diocese of Masr, the most important after Alexandria opened up, John wanted to have Mark take it, which would have disqualified him from the patriarch position, as bishops could not transfer up from one diocese to another. The patriarch of Alexandria was still considered another bishop, a first among equals at best, rather than the head of the church. So only monks and priests were qualified to be raised to that position, and bishops could not be promoted to the office as in modern-day practice. So, disobeying his spiritual father, 
Mark refused to take the Diocese of Mosr, which didn't make Jean too happy. Eventually, a certain monk named Michael became the Bishop of Mosr, and he did a wonderful job. So after a while, Mark and John were eventually reconciled, and Mark went back to his status as the heir apparent. John's reign was a shining spot in a dark century. It was the best that could be done. Yet still, it was not enough to halt the transformation that was going on. He truly made all the right moves. He strengthened the financial affairs of the church, which allowed him to keep the governors happy with their tax portion. There was no strictly Coptic rebellions in his reign. And even the Arab ones, like the rebellions that we talked about last week in 784, John made sure to stay as far away as possible from that. Again, a good move as the caliph responded by sending a large Syrian army, which crushed the rebels and would have seriously damaged the Coptic church if there was any involvement from John or even the unruly Bashmorites who were quiet under his leadership. In Baghdad, two years after this rebellion, the caliph al-Mahdi died, leaving the caliphate to his two sons, Musa al-Hadi and Harun al-Rashid. Both sons have grown up in the palace and given the best education possible. Both were sent on military expedition, Harun against the Byzantines and al-Hadi to put down rebellions coming from around the Caspian Sea. But despite their similar experiences, Harun was a very much a palace creature comfortable with the civil administration and the servants of the palace. His older brother, on the other hand, developed close links with the military elite. The arrangement at their father's death was straightforward. Musa is to be the caliph and Harun is to follow him, which initially seemed to work. Even so, Ilhadi was absent when the caliph died. Harun respected the arrangement, and everyone waited for Al-Hadi to come and take his office. When he arrived, so, Al-Hadi made a couple of bad decisions. First, he dismissed or arrested many of the influential Ballas servants, replacing them with military leaders. Second, he cancelled a lot of the Ali family benefits and pensions, which kicked off a revolt in Medina right away. This rebellion failed, and one of its leaders escaped all the way to modern Morocco, where he will eventually build a Shia dynasty that we will talk about when it reaches Egypt. Thirteen months later, in a very mysterious circumstances, probably as a result of an assassination plot, Musa al-Hadi died, leaving the throne to his brother, Harun al-Rashid, in what Hugh Kennedy describes as a coup that was swift and efficient. The caliphate history is a very obscure topic to much of the world, 
But Harun al-Rashid is the poster boy for that time and place of history. A sort of the Diocletian of the Caliphate was a very complicated package. We won't really be able to dive deep into his reign, as it is a little bit outside of the scope of this podcast. Just know that he ruled for more than two decades, where the Caliphate reached its peak culturally and economically. For us, a couple of things are important. First, as he came to power, as a result of the palace servants and the civil administration intrigue, these guys, specifically the Barmakid family, accumulated a lot of power during his reign. Second, in Egypt, Harun changed governors so often and so quickly that the position essentially ceased to matter, at least from the historical perspective. Egypt was effectively ruled by Baghdad by litters. It did not matter whatsoever who's in charge on the grounds. In his 23 years of rule, there was 22 governors. None lasted more than a year and a few months. Ruling a place as big as the caliphate with litters is very hard and inefficient. As a result, the civil administration was increasingly frustrated at the revenue coming from Egypt. The Delta was parts of it completely dominated by Arabs now, the grandson of the tribes who were settled a while back, essentially refused to pay any taxes. Our Ninth Rebellion broke out in 793. But again, wisely, John stayed away, and it was mostly led by those Arabs in the Delta. The Caliph, learning from what happened in the last revolt, rather than rely on the garrison to put down the rebels, he sent Khorasani troops who had no trouble putting down the rebels. Some of these Khorasani troops ended up settling in the province, and shortly after the death of Harun, Egypt would be divided between several warlords, a couple of whom would be from those Khorasani troops. The civil administration, led by the guidance of the Barmakid family, made several fiscal changes in the meantime. The land tax, the Kharaj, was moved from being a tax in kind to a tax in cash. An effective increase, as the price of wheat varied from year to year. Not to mention, big landowners figured out that farming flax instead of wheat was more profitable, since it was less taxed. This development, as expected, exacerbated the famines. It is here that Egypt ceased to be the breadbasket of the Middle East, and wheat was no longer exported outside the province. Another Arab rebellion broke out in 801, and again, the Christian Copts mostly stayed quiet. The Arabs in the Delta were again defeated, but not decisively enough to break them. 
a letter was dispatched to Harun al-Rashid asking for more foreign troops. The man delivering the letter, sir, told the caliph that if he was appointed as the governor, he would deliver the taxes without the need of any troops. And just like that, the caliph removed the governor at the spot and appointed his messenger to replace him. It is not entirely clear if the promise was fulfilled or not, as the caliph was about to enter into a very troublesome part of his reign. You see, Harun was preparing a very complicated succession arrangement, and as part of ensuring that it works, he gutted the civil administration and eliminated the bedrock of his government, the Barmakid family. This caused major instability in the caliphate. For us in Egypt, tax farming on a large scale ended up being the policy. But it was feeling badly as powerful warlords essentially carved out the little fiefdoms and defended them well. In a telling incident, a large amount of tax money going from Egypt to Baghdad was interrupted and stolen by one of the garrisons in Palestine. In other places, large-scale rebellions broke out. The most successful of them was in Khorasan, where Harun had to go personally. On his way back, he died, leaving his two sons with a complicated arrangement where one would get the title Caliph and the other would get Khorasan and the best military troops available. A really terrible idea that will eventually lead to civil war. We will get there in a second, but for now I want to wrap up John's reign and talk about his successor, which was being groomed to follow him for a long time, the deacon Mark. In 799, John died after a reign of relative quiet and peace. As we mentioned, two rebellions broke out during his time, but he kept the cops away. Despite his best efforts, during his reign, conversions became a normalized fact of life, and depending on the source, the end of his reign may have witnessed the first Arabic use inside the church itself. One of the apocalyptic texts we talked about in a prior episode was written about a hundred years or so after his death. In it, the writer, Pseudo Samuel, laments the widespread use of Arabic as part of the liturgy. So, his reign, or more likely his successor reign, is probably where it all started. At any rate, after the death of John, the clergy in Alexandria assembled, and as expected, they nominated Mark to follow him. They couldn't just ordain him so. The times have changed, and it was understood that it was not they who picked the patriarch, but the bishops with the approval of the Muslim governor. All what they could do is send a letter nominating Mark to Fustat and to several of the bishops, 
The passage in the history of the patriarchs, recounting the interaction between the bishops and the governor to get his approval, is quite telling on the state of the church. Quote, Therefore, Michael, bishop of Masr, summoned all the chief men at Masr, and they went to the governor. And the bishops, that is, Abba Michael and the envoys, entered into the governor's presence, for he admitted no other. And he said to them, What is your business? Abba Michael replied, We make it known to your lordship that our father, the chief and father of our religion, whom we had, is dead. Then the governor asked, What then do you desire? They answered, May God lengthen your days. There are heavy taxes upon the property of the church, and therefore we desire to appoint a successor to him, who may administer the affairs of the church and the people. Then the governor inquired, And what is his name? They said that it was Mark. See, he ordered that Mark's name should be written in the divine and then gave them permission to appoint him in the place of Abajan. Basically, the patriarch Mark was presented and accepted by the governor as nothing more than a tax administrator, someone who would be responsible for paying what the church owed in land taxes. So, was the governor approval? Mark started his 20-year reign after a lifetime of experience under Jean. Like his spiritual father, Mark was an excellent administrator. Further, he was greatly assisted by the Bishop of Masr, Michael, who at this point was a powerful broker who supervised the monasteries and served as the link to the government in Fustat. Both of them went to the governor shortly after the formal ordination of the patriarch. In their meeting, the governor was quite impressed by the eloquence and the character of Mark, which the bishop used to get a permission to rebuild some of the churches in Fostat. Apparently, those churches were destroyed intentionally on the orders of a previous governor for an unknown reason and obscure circumstances. Quote, we have here churches, some of which were demolished by the tyrant before your arrival in Egypt. And so the Lord demolished his house and cut off his life from earth. If then your wisdom sees good to order that we rebuild our churches so that we may pray to them and intercede for your highness, the matter lies in your hand. He then followed the same playbook from his predecessor, sending a letter to Antioch to establish a link between the two churches. In an interesting development, so, for the first time in our narrative, the patriarch had to go and look for people who still knew Greek to talk to the Antiochians. It is unclear whether Mark himself knew how to write in Greek, and knowing Greek was so unique that the writer of his biography 
mentioned the men who he was eventually able to find by name, singling them out for their education. The Bishop of Tinnis, a prosperous city in the Delta, the Bishop of Alfarama on the borders of Palestine, and the superintendent of the churches of Alexandria. These were the envoys to the Antiochians. As I mentioned before, this is the period where Arabic probably started to replace Greek, even inside the church and its liturgies and ceremonies. Another important moment in the early days of Mark was the end of the last holdout of an offshoot of the early Miaphysite movement. If you remember, a while back in episode 54, early in the Umayyad administration, a policy lit by a Coptic secretary doubling the taxes and those churches crippled most of them. Well, now, almost a hundred years later, a particularly stubborn group that had only one bishop finally capitulated under the pressure of the time in the diplomacy of Mark. The patriarch reached an agreement with their bishop, an elderly man who had a younger son that hoped to follow his father in his office. They agreed to come back to the Coptic church, no theological strings attached, and in return, the elderly man gets to keep his position as a bishop, and his son would be set up to follow him. Of course, after going several through ceremonial steps, making it clear that they were misguided heretics in the past, and slowly integrating them to the larger church. At the same time, the Milkite church was actually doing quite well. Their patriarch, a talented physician, managed to make it all the way to Harun al-Rashid to Baghdad and treat him, which earned him and his church a lot of money and prestige. So more or less, in the first seven years of Mark's reign, it was a continuation of the work of Jean. Churches were renovated and built, infrastructure projects in Alexandria were expanded, and the governors in Fustat, once they got their taxes, let the patriarch be. It was only during the tail end of Harun's reign in 806 was the dismissal of the Barmakid family, and then later his death, that Mark's job got extremely difficult. Now, this next part of our story, the last few years of Harun's life, and the civil war following his death, is extremely complicated. So before going through all the details, here is the big take-home message. From 806 to 831, Egypt was completely in chaos, ungovernable, no man's land. With the chaos came depopulation, famines, and a whole generation of war that completely transformed the country. When this period ends, the majority of Egypt's inhabitants would be Muslims and Arabic-speaking. Not an overwhelming majority, 
but a majority nonetheless. The plan is to break this period into two halves. This week we will do until 816 and the destruction of Alexandria, and next week we will go through the Bashmorites' demise in 831. So, here we go. In 806, the efficiency of the central government was slipping. A thousand men strong raiding party from the same rebellious Arabs in the Delta formed and systemically ravaged the land. These guys would show up in your village, take all your movable goods as booty, women and children as slaves, and then move on. The garrison in Fustat was completely unable to contain them, and Harun had bigger fish to deal with in Khorasan than to worry about these guys. In 807, the towns of Tanu and Tumai formed their own militia under a certain Osman ibn al-Mustanir, and they managed to exist as their own little fiefdom for a while. Keep this Osman in mind, as he will come back in our narrative in a bit. These two incidents took place before Harun died, in 809. When he dies, his two sons will go through a brutal civil war, where things will get much, much worse quickly. At best of times, two warlords will hold the country. At worst, as many as one for each little town and city. It was a broken land, and truly a dark time. In Baghdad, at the Caliph's death, Al-Amin, his older son, became the uncontested Caliph right away. His younger brother, Al-Ma'mun, as the arrangement stated, was in Khorasan ruling the province as its de facto king, with access to its quality troops. To make a long story short, Al-Amin was pressured by the military establishment to bring Khorasan under his control. This prompted his brother, Al-Ma'mun, to give himself the title Imam, a religious leader, similar to what the Ali's family have been doing. Two years later, after threats and counter-threats, the Caliph in Baghdad assembled a 40,000-strong army, intending to bring Khorasan and his younger brother under his control. His brother managed only to get 5,000 men to face the Caliph's army. But in a major surprise, Al-Ma'mun 5,000 men army decisively defeated the Caliph's eight times larger army in Iran and then quickly moved into Iraq, intending to remove the current Caliph and install Al-Ma'mun instead. It took a lengthy siege to Baghdad and three years of fighting, but eventually Al-Amin was induced into negotiating then he was betrayed and executed. And even then, three years was the legitimate caliph being besieged in Baghdad 
meant that independent warlords were now all over the place. And it took Al-Ma'mun a long time to establish some sort of centralized control over the caliphate lands. Now, to go back to Egypt, to simplify the anarchy, there was the following groups. First, there was the garrison in Fustat, the seasonal soldiers, who were essentially the established aristocrats of the country. They supported Al-Ma'mun and Khorasan, but were pretty feeble at this point. Then, you have the Arabs settled in the Delta, a rebellious group who only a few years earlier were raiding the country for profit. They nominally supported Al-Amin in Baghdad. Osman, who I mentioned earlier, with his own little fiefdom, he supported Al-Amin. There was also a certain Abdelaziz al-Jawari. He held power in the Eastern Delta. And finally, there was Al-Sari, a Khorasani soldier who stayed in Egypt and quickly gathered a few troops around him and established himself as one of the warlords in the country. He controlled Upper Egypt. So in summary, like I said, virtual anarchy was carrying the day. Between 811 and 813, all these groups jockeyed for the control of Egypt, and raids and counter-raids were all over the country. Sufficient to say, the civilian population suffered heavily. By 813, after two years of fighting each other, making alliances, then betraying those alliances, Egypt ended up divided between two warlords, Abdelaziz al-Jawari ruling the north, and al-Sari, the Khorasani soldier, ruling this house. Both collected the taxes for themselves, and acknowledged the caliph in name only. The garrison in Fustat was wiped out. They lost all of their influence, and became like the Copts, a native population subject to the whims of a militaristic aristocratic elite. By 815, out of nowhere, a group of armed pirates slash soldiers slash refugees from Islamic Spain, Al-Andalus, landed in Alexandria. They burned the palace where the last of those influential families of the garrison lived, with them inside, and took control of the city. Alexandria, at this point, became its own mini-state, controlled by the Spanish Muslims, and all the works of building and renovations done by Jean and Denmark went into smokes, literally and figuratively. You see, the Spaniards used Alexandria as a port to raid the Mediterranean islands, and slaves from the raids flooded the market. The patriarch Mark, in a very humanistic spirit, was extremely troubled by this development, and made it a point to buy and free the slaves. 
quote, Therefore, when our father Mark saw these captives, he was grieved because human beings were sold as if they were cattle. Moreover, many of them became Muslims. And because his heart was compassionate, he redeemed many of them, such as monks and priests and deacons and virgins and mothers of children, until he had bought as many as 6,000 souls. When he purchased one of these prisoners, he wrote a deed of emancipation for him on a spot and gave into his hand a letter which set him free. And Abba Mark said to those whom he liberated, If any of you wish to settle with me, he shall be as my son. But to him that desires to return to his own native country, I will give the means of bringing him to his own people. At any rate, two Bedouin tribes that lived in the western desert between Alexandria and Libya saw what the Spaniards were doing, and they too decided to get into the action. Prolonged fighting then took place between the tribes and the Spaniards, and that's when the city was completely ruined. Mark, like his predecessor, had spent a lot of time and resources building a beautiful cathedral in the city, the Church of the Savior. After a particularly nasty night of fighting, where a lot of the Spanish soldiers were ambushed and killed, a group of them gathered and went door to door, burning and killing the inhabitants of the city, whenever a body of their comrades were found. Several bodies were found around the Church of the Savior, so the church was burned to the ground. Mark had to leave the city with nothing but his clothes. And just like that, Alexandria was dead, and Mark was the bishop of a city of ashes. He became extremely depressed, a biblical Jeremiah-like figure, where his home was destroyed and he was exiled. Eventually, a certain official named Macarius reached out to Abdelaziz, the warlord ruling northern Egypt, and asked him to extend his protection to the patriarch. Abdelaziz agreed, and marked settled in a small city in the Delta, under the protection of Al-Jawari and Macarius. He was a bishop of a city that he would not see again in his lifetime. Next time, the anarchy in Egypt will produce the last and the largest of the Coptic rebellions, one that will bring the Caliph himself to Egypt and decisively crushed the Bashmorites, a moment in history where Islamic Egypt truly begins. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time.